Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining Podcast. And today I've got a special guest with me who has a long career in the mining industry spanning 40 years and has been in some very high profile positions and he will explain during the course of this podcast. Nick Clark is the chairman of Central Asia Metals, who have operations in Central Asia and are actively looking to strengthen the business in various ways, which no doubt Nick will explain in this episode. So let's get straight into this and welcome Nick Clark. Hi, Nick. Good morning and thank you. Well, thank you again um, for inviting me to your offices here today in Mayfair. Um, I'm sure the audience, like myself, are keen to know more about your mining career and how your journey has developed over time from when you first studied at the Campbell School of Mines back in the day, where uh, up until where you are now. So let's kick off this. Um, and first of all, which I seem to ask every, uh, every um, interviewee that I, uh, that I do this podcast with, why did you, uh, why did you get into mining? Uh, that's a long question. I, um, I was looking in the early 70s for a, a career, something to do at university. And I always believed, even in those days, that it was going to be in the engineering sciences. And um, my father was a civil engineer. He'd worked many years overseas. And I think it was the attraction of working overseas in uh, those early days, in the early 70s, when uh, you know, economically the UK was not doing particularly well. And lots of um, young people were thinking about working overseas. Uh, and I saw an advert in a in a journal in the library of the college I was uh, studying A-levels at, uh, which had um, a sort of a glossy uh, advert for the mining industry, Campbell School of Mines, study uh, in Cornwall, uh, learn to surf, and then uh, the world was your oyster. It would take you to uh, exciting foreign foreign lands. And uh, as a young lad, who could uh, who could ignore that? Yeah. So what attracted you? Was it the the subject or maybe the adventure maybe going to other countries? I think it's both. Um, I wanted to be an engineer, as I said. Mining was uh, uh, something which I hitherto had not had any thoughts about. My parents or or my father had not been involved in. No members of the family had been, but it was something different. And I suppose as a... As a, as a young lad, it's, it's, it's not quite doing what your father did, yeah. who, and he was a civil engineer, uh, and he always viewed civil engineering as the senior engineering uh, 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 discipline, and mining was a, a, a poor second or third. Um, so maybe it's a bit of a rebelling against that. But nonetheless, um, I applied to Campbell School of Mines back in the day, back in uh, 1971, and um, they, they, they were interested in you is as much for your prowess on the rugby field as they were for your academic yeah. ability. And it was a sort of institution that um, I felt that would, would suit my type of uh, uh, interest. And um, so I joined in 1971. Okay. And then once you, obviously you were there for three or four years, once you graduated, what did you do then? Well, you know, I had a fantastic three years at college. It wasn't like the... Um, 
a normal university with um, you know thousands of students. It was a small institution, uh, 120 students th- over three years, all of them only studying mining. There was no other courses in, in geology or mineral processing as there is today. So, um, and the students was a, a pretty eclectic mix from around the world. We had Malaysian students, we had South Africans, we had people from the uh, uh, Southern Rhodesia as it was then and, and Zambia. And you met uh, people actually in the industry and you worked with them and studied with them. You played rugby with them and you uh, socialized with them and you got the feel of the fraternity that is the mining industry. And, and, and those early days, it, it imbibes in you a feeling of um, community from yeah. the mining industry, which is quite, quite peculiar to the mining industry because you can work all over the world, work with different people from different nations. And you, you may not see somebody for 20 or 30 years, but if you've worked with them before, you can see them today and just go out and have a drink with them as if it was yeah. yesterday. Yeah. Um, and that fraternity, that community, um, you, you, you start it in, 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 your, in your college days when you study with people. I'm still friendly with people from 45 years ago when I, when I was at the Campbell School of Mines. And, you know, people email, email me. I may not have seen them for 20 or 30 years. Um, and it's just like yesterday. Yeah. So um, it's that that starts the excitement. Um, and then, obviously, when I qualified in 1974, it's a question of, you know, what do you do? Yeah. And I suppose back then, which may be obviously a lot different than, than it is today, where was there a lot of mining jobs around in the UK then? Because what I found with a lot of senior candidates, what they, uh, for someone that studied back then, their opportunities were probably overseas more so than what they were in the UK. Was that the same for yourself? Yeah, it was. Uh, um, you know, as I said from the outset, the, the attraction, one of the attractions that took me into the mining uh, engineering course was the opportunity to travel. So when I qualified in 1974, there wasn't much metal mining in this country. Um, you know, there were some uh, tin mines down in Cornwall, both South Crofty and there was Pendarvis working Pendine and there was Wheel Jane. But it was always the big opportunity was overseas. Um, and, and up to that point, uh, many jobs were offered in Australia and in Canada, but there had been a change in, in, uh, the, the attitude of the Canadians and Australians to, uh, limiting the number of new engineers coming into the countries in those days. And so the bulk of the jobs were offered in Zambia and in South Africa. And of course, in those days, the, the big mining houses would employ, you know, 10 or 20 graduates each year from uh, the mining courses here in uh, the UK, at predominantly Camborne and the Royal School of Mines. And um, a whole host of you would go out on the same plane and you would land in South Africa and then get um, allocated to the mining districts, uh, whichever company you joined, whether it was Anglo or Union Corporation in my case. So it was a terrific, terrific training ground for young engineers. And, and these companies took you on and put you through graduate training schemes um, and you're working on some of the biggest gold mines that uh, existed in those days. And it's a great, great grounding. Hard, very hard. But you come out the other side with a fantastic uh, uh, understanding of the, of the workings of the mine. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you look at nowadays, those opportunities don't seem to be, don't seem to be there. Do you, what do you, why do you think that could be the reason why? Why those opportunities well, are Well, uh, you know, obviously. Um, and I suppose... With obviously the recession, if we discount the recession, um, I still don't, didn't see too many opportunities. 
Well, for, for young graduates, it is harder now. Bear in mind, in those days, there were not many um, uh, training courses, uh, universities training overseas uh, graduates into the mining industry. So you didn't get many locals, Zambian, South African, Australian uh, engineers being trained, and, and the UK were training a lot. Um, but what's happened in time is you've got, you're getting more uh, um, more citizens of the countries in which the mines operate uh, being trained up, and they're doing the jobs, and that's only to be expected as, as things move on. Um, what we still have in the UK, I believe, is a fantastic grounding uh, in, in, in international mining. Uh, and, of course, um, uh, in, over the years, things have changed somewhat. So many of the graduates used to go into the oil industry um, post, you know, the 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 the, uh, the uh, um, mining industry going into uh, recession back in the late eighties, early nineties. Many of the graduates in Camden School of Mines were equally as at home in the oil industry, and so um, you know, as one industry sort of uh, falters slightly, another may pick up, and the graduates go into those. The finance sector, banking sector, many many graduates went into that. So um, there's always a lot of opportunity. Um, over the years, however, nowadays it is tough for young engineers yeah. to get uh, to get a posting. Um, so what they've done is, I think they've moved more technical. They're much more computer orientated. In my days, we were sort of um, much more hands on, shall I say? And so you were a, um, a master of none of the trades, but you learnt all the trades. You learnt geology, sampling, surveying, ventilation, all of those aspects of mining, which keep a mine operating. Um, and so when you came out the other end, you, you understood all those aspects of the mining industry and you were sort of being trained by the big mining houses to become managers. And so not an expert necessarily in any particular uh, sphere, but a, um, a master of uh, uh, none, but a not with knowledge of all. Yeah. Um, so I suppose it's like a trainee management. It, it was a trainee management scheme and they were fantastic. Um, you know, they, these houses spent a lot of money on taking it graduates. And out of a, an intake in any one year, say 20, if they ended up with one or two um, people who went on into the senior management uh, um, schemes, they would, they would view that as a win. Mm. I suppose that, moving on to my next question, obviously the, the transition process from being a mine engineer and going into, into management, um, how was that for you? Well, I did, um, I did a couple of years, two and a half years in South Africa, uh, working on the gold mines uh, in Velcom. and that was a tough um, that was a tough environment to learn your trade. Um, uh, I know this is a, a, a pod, an audio podcast. I, I'm I'm not the slimmest of gentlemen around, but in the day in the early seventies, my fighting weight at rugby was about nine stone wet. Right. And so, going out to a South African gold mine as a as an Englishman with slightly long hair hair touching your collar. Uh, it was a tough, tough in environment yeah. in which to uh, uh, be inserted. And so the South African um, Africana took great delight in sort of um, uh, um, handing out the worst jobs to the, to the oh, yeah. newest young lad on the mine. But if you come through that and you do all the hard yards and you do the back shifts and you do those things where at the middle of the night you sit there uh, and you think, what on earth am I doing here? One mile underground in South Africa, no friends, being given the worst jobs. Will this ever end? Yeah. And is this my life? Um, and 
you know, it's easy. And a lot of people did just give up because it was just too tough. Yeah. Um, stick with it. And that my advice to anybody is you've got to do your hard yards. You've got to do your so-called apprenticeship. The college uh, degree does not give you a, an automatic right to anything. You must now uh, bend, put your back into it and do some hard yards, learn the craft, and you'll come out the other side a much more useful animal to the, the, the mining industry. Yeah, I suppose in one way it is trying to get that opportunity, but once you have that opportunity, again, it's sticking with it. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I did, uh, as I said, two and a half years in South Africa, um, and I was quite happy there. We'd emigrated there. My, my wife uh, and I had emigrated there. Um, and then I saw an advert in a, a newspaper in South Africa for a gold mine in West Africa called Ashanti, Oboasi mine. Um, Ashanti Goldfields, and several friends of mine from uh, Campbellhorn School of Mines days I knew already worked there, and that was a different type of contract. Whereas in South Africa, you'd emigrated there, and that was it. You you went, you stayed, and you saved your money up to to fly home. And of course, a flight to South Africa or back to the UK in those days was a lot of money yep. in comparison to the uh, cost today. Um, so when a, when an opportunity came up to be an expatriate paid on an expatriate basis and flown home on leave every year, that was quite an attractive um, opportunity for a young 27-year-old, I think it was at the time, 27, 28-year-old. So applied, got the job, and I went off to Ghana in West Africa to work on on Ashanti. Um, Again, expectation only to work a couple of years, and I stayed 10 years. Okay. So it was late 80s before I... Uh, started to think about moving on elsewhere. Yeah. And of course, working in West Africa, one of the richest gold mines uh, in, in the world at the time, um, huge mine, 10,000 people, 80, 90 expatriates on the mine. Fantastic experience that you wouldn't get in any normal environment. No, not at all. So how was, from obviously moving from a mine engineer into a management role, um, do you need a certain personality? So if there's if there's mine engineers out there that may have five, six, seven years experience and have that decision whether they want to go down the technical route or go down the management route, is there any advice that you can give them? Is there any personalities that they need? Um, huh. uh, that, 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 that's actually quite a dip, di, di, difficult one. Uh, getting Jumping from the technical side into management, uh, Management on mines is a natural progression. Yeah. It tends to be a natural progression. You've got to have a steely, uh, hard um, shell because you, sudden, you, you suddenly sort of uh, separate yourself from your co-workers and you become management and you have to tell people and do things um, to people that they may not like. I tell people they're not suitable for a role or promote or demote people or fire people. It's a very, very challenging environment. And if your character is not up to that, yeah. then recognize that early on and say to yourself, right, I'm quite happy to stay within the technical side of things. Um, but I recognize having worked nearly 14 years in production mining that um, uh, post and, and post uh, Ghana, uh, I actually Ghana worked f- for the tin mining industry in Cornwall. And then that started to fold up when the tin tin price collapsed. Uh, and that made me move to um, Saudi Arabia. I went to Saudi Arabia for 18 months and, and uh, was manager of a, a gold mine there, Mahad at the hub. And so that was another uh, string in your bow, managing a, a mine in, the, in that sort of uh, environment. 
in the desert in, in Saudi Arabia. Um, post that, uh, I went and ran and set up a mining consultancy group um, associated with my old college, Camborne. Um, and I ran that for about 13 years. Um, in the late 90s, I engineered a sellout uh, a joint venture with uh, Wardle Armstrong, which was another major mining consultancy in the, in the UK. Uh, and I ran that till about 2014. So I'd now done 14 years of mining, you know, on, on, on mine experience with all the management uh, aspects and tiers that I, I'd been involved in, ran a consultancy business uh, and took that business, uh, probably the first, one of the first uh, consultancy groups, took, took the business into the Central Asia, into Kazakhstan. I went yeah. there in 92, which was one of the first sort of forays, so 93, which is the first forays into Kazakhstan. And that sort of gave us a, um, a good start. And so when people started to look, particularly Canadians, started to look at mining opportunities in the former stands, um, the former Soviet Union, and they would ask who's got any experience in, the, in Kazakhstan. And, yeah. you know, you put your hand up, you're the only one in the room. Yeah. So you tend to get more work. And um, it was very lucrative and the business did extremely well. Doing due diligence reports for... Western uh, investment uh, money and um, and also doing competent persons reports for companies when they look to list on stock exchanges, either TSX or AIM here in London, uh, and, and doing their technical reporting. So, you know, 10 or 12 years of that gives you a good insight into how small mining companies are run yeah. and the type of people that run them. Yeah. Would you say you've had any, and I suppose just from what you've been speaking about some of those companies that you were managing and running. Um, have you had any major challenges um, when you've been in those roles that you'd like to, uh, like to discuss? Um, well, I, you, you always get challenges. You, you get people who are not fit for the role. Um, and, and so you had to, as I said, management uh, in, requires you to ensure that you, um, you deal with that. You can't just brush it on the carpet and ignore it. Um, but by the early 2000, 2004, I'd run the consultancy business and brought people in as I saw fit. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not going to ask your, answer your immediate question, but more go back to the original, your, your intro, which yeah. was along the lines of how did you get into management? Yeah. In 2004, having done a lot of reports for a lot of companies to list on and raise money on stock exchanges, I recognized that the skill set of some of the people managing these companies was not possibly uh, too, uh, they weren't too um, heavy in technical skill set. There was a lot of lawyers, uh, uh, accountants, and corporate types, but they had little um, knowledge of what was actually required to develop or take a project from ground, you know, a green field to, to production. So, Strangely, we'd done a, a competent persons report for a company who listed on uh, the London Stock Exchange, AIM, in 2004. And about two weeks after they'd listed and raised money, I had a phone call from the managing director saying, uh, Nick, you know, with that money we've just raised, would I possibly consider moving, uh, leaving the consultancy group where I was the MD and it was I could stay there till I retired, yeah. quite comfortably running a, a consultancy group, would I consider joining their London-listed company um, as director of mining? Um, 
and I thought long and hard about it. Um, and uh, it was uh, financially, it was looking very attractive. So I took that quite brave move for, um, to, I believe, um, to leave consultancy where I was living and, and working down in Cornwall in West, uh, the West of England, where you know many people would kill to actually live and work in that environment, um, to come and uh, be director of mining of a small mining company here in London yeah. with an asset in Kazakhstan, um, and and his you know, people know from uh, example these companies probably didn't last too long. Yeah. You know, they flared and died. They either became a success or they ran out of money or whatever. And that, that was the sort of, in the early 2000s, that was the sort of model. Yeah. Um, and was that the right decision for you? Well, I'm sitting here now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in that four-year four year period that I was with that company, I became the managing director of the company. Um, we developed a an underground chrome mine in Kazakhstan we debt financed that about 140 million. We also have an equity. I was building it in Kazakhstan. I had a great team of people, project director on site and a country manager, both incidentally Camborne School of Mines people from my era who I'd worked with. And so this is the benefit you have when you become a, uh, you know, like I am a, in, in, in a corporate uh, yeah. environment. You know, you start pulling in those people that you've worked with over the years. Yeah. Um, and we built the mine very successfully. Um, and then we were in the lead up to the um, general uh, global financial crisis that we all know occurred in the mid 2008. Yeah. Prior to that, the metal commodity prices were, were, were racing away. Yeah. And um, in, in early 2008, the, the price of the chrome ore that we were looking to mine, and we were still building the mine, um, quadrupled. Yeah. And so the mine NPV that we started off looking at a $350 million NPV when we did all the feasibility studies suddenly had an NPV well over a billion dollars based on the latest chrome prices. Yeah. And a Russian company decided they wanted to get into the chrome business and they wanted a chrome mine. Right. And they came and made a cash offer for the company um, in February of 2008. Yeah. Um, and um, we sold the company, it actually all completed by about end of May okay. 2008. And now the next part is a lesson in timing. Yep. The um, financial crisis started to hit in the middle of that year. And by the September, October, the chrome ore that was, had been $700 a ton back at the beginning of the year went back to its long-term price of under $200 a ton. Okay, yeah. So it, it just shows that, you know, and I'll come on to maybe something I'll, I'll mention later, is timing. Yeah. Is, is the secret to a lot Certainly. of this. And when the GFC hit around about that time, I meant for myself being a recruiter, I was working in Australia and I didn't see too much of a uh, downturn then. I felt it come later on, three or four years later on. But that was over, obviously over, over the other side of the world. What was your um, recollection of during that time? Obviously you sold that company, but then after then, was the market still relatively busy then? No, it was okay. pretty pretty dire. Um, the debt markets closed up with the banks. The project finance was not available. Um, early in two thousand and nine, the, the copper price got below four thousand dollars a ton. Uh, gold was hit. All, all the base metals were hit. Yeah. So those looking to raise money suffered. They just couldn't. Um, I think the main mining companies that were actually operating then 
they didn't necessarily suffer. So if you're in operation, they didn't yeah. suffer as much as those looking to raise money to develop projects. Yeah. And of course, I was operating in the very much the, the, the junior sector where you look to raise money from the markets. Yeah. Um, and then my next opportunity came where a, a, a somebody I'd worked with back in the early 70s, uh, sorry, early 90s in Kazakhstan uh, phoned me up who had now moved on from where he was to setting up companies. And he said, look, Nick, we've got this company. It's private. Um, we've got seven assets, uh, three in Mongolia and four in Kazakhstan. We, we don't know where we're going. Um, can you come in and give us some advice as to what we should discard and what we should take forward? So in early 2009, having taken a bit of a break, um, I, I sort of didn't de- didn't jump in both feet. I said, look, I'd come and help you on a part-time basis, um, which morphed into being appointed the CEO in uh, oh the middle of 2009, um, identifying a project in, in Central Asia Metals, as it was then, and, and it is now. Um, and that's the project that started the company off uh, on its on its trail and where we've ended up today. today. Yeah. Well, we're probably going to go on to that soon. Um, and another thing I, uh, I was uh, reading about yourself, you were named the CEO of the year at the Mining Journal, for the Mining Journal Outstanding Achievements Awards back in 2013. So obviously congratulations for that. Um, what, did that award, uh, what did that award mean to you? Well, it, it meant an awful lot because... Um, Working in the smaller, the junior mining sector, um, it's it's hard. It's hard graft because you've got to raise money all the time. You you, you know you you don't have the ability or you don't have the backup of a of a major group. You know with with, with lots of technical support, lots of financial support. So you're doing so much on your own. And again, you know, how do you transition from a technical person running people on a mine? to running a company on a corporate level. Yeah. Um, that is a, um, that's an opportunity that doesn't always come around for people. And how do you, how does a young engineer, or how does an engineer with lots of experience get that opportunity? Because yeah. um, you don't get any training. There's no training of, on corporate. I, you know, I think there's courses that you can yeah. do in, in this sort of thing. And I know some people go off and do an MBA and that gives them a good grounding in understanding uh, the that give, I suppose that gives the uh, the the um, theory, but not the practical. Exactly, that gives you a good understanding of of how a balance sheet works and how to, a company operates. But you have to get out there on the ground and learn how to sit in front of fund managers, tell them a story of what you intend to do, and I was going to say persuade them, but give them a story, give them a business plan, and give them confidence that. If they invest in you and your company, you're going to make a return for them. Yeah. And so how do you get in? How do you make that jump from a being a technical to a corporate person? You know, it's much as anything, it's serendipity. Mm. It's an opportunity coming along. It's making the right life choices. Um, we all make choices in life and we, we take paths. Um, way back when I decided I would learn my craft and do Mining. So I put up with mining, and I say put up because there were some very challenging times. Being involved in the production industry is tough um, on a number of levels, but stick with it, do it, 
then I took the decision to go into consulting to, to get a, a broader um, experience in the industry, um, which I did for 12 years and, and went into new markets looking, you know, breaking into the former Soviet Union. So now having got behind me an experience of good production experience in, in the gold mining industry, in, in, in underground mining, in surface mining, consultancy, um, understanding the markets to the extent of what the market wants to see in terms of technical reporting. Then when the opportunity comes, and I mentioned it uh, a few minutes ago, that phone call that says, would I leave the com comfy life, the managing director, uh, with the ability to shout at anybody without any fear of anybody coming back to you, suddenly saying, right, well, I'm going to give all that up and I'm going to start, not start completely again, but start again with a junior mining company, knowing how fickle they can be yeah. and how the markets turn, all of a sudden, you know, the government takes against, it doesn't give a permit, you can't get environmental permitting uh, and the like, or you run out of money. Um, th these are a risk. Yeah, yeah. So, and I suppose you had to get comfortable being uncomfortable yeah. where you were sitting in an MD role um, and then trying to make something happen with a, with a junior miner where you have so many different things to think about, apart from obviously projects, finance, getting people on board. There's a lot more to it, starting something off from, from, from fresh than having already something already put in place. And well, uh, you know, and it's a good way of putting it. The... Um, Project that we had in Aurora Resources, which I joined in 2004, um, and this just shows you how you've got to be fleet of foot. We started off with a big nickel laterite project in Kazakhstan. Um, when we did the feasibility studies, it was patently obvious that the capital cost was going to be way outside what we could, what we could manage. If you're a company with a market cap of, say, $20, $30 million, you're not going to build a project six, $700 million yeah. capital cost because who's going to give you the money? Nobody. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to be frank, have you got the skill set in-house to manage a project of that size? No, it is, tends to be the larger companies. So we about faced and we said, okay, well, we need to right-size a project in the group. And um, we identified a chrome asset in Kazakhstan, um, which had a much lower capital estimate on it, and we, we put our foot on it. We bought this thing um, for about $20 million, I, I, if I recall rightly. But then I, in, in the February of 2005, I first put foot on it. There was a couple of holes into it, but they were old Soviet holes, so they didn't stand uh, scrutiny in today's um, requirements for JORC and 43101 uh, resource classification. So I drilled 19,000 meters of holes in it. I appointed SRK to undertake a pre-feasibility. That showed that this was a good project. We immediately went on to feasibility study. At the same time, we were side you know, parallel tracking on a financing package with, with some banks and some local banks and local uh, European uh, Asian development banks. Um, and we, we secured $140 million of debt financing. Um, at the same time, we brought in a, a Russian investor who brought a, a, a ferrochrome smelter in St. Petersburg into the company. So now we were building a chrome mine in Kazakhstan. We were operating a ferrochrome plant in St. Petersburg. And the idea was that the chrome mine would obviously feed raw chrome product up to 
the ferrochrome plant in St. Petersburg. And so we had a, an in, a vertically integrated company and chrome was doing very nicely. But of course, the, um, the ability to implement a project in Kazakhstan, where not many Western companies had actually done so, was... Imagine very difficult. Hard. Getting the right people on board. And as I said, you know, some of the managers were ex-Campbell School of Mines people yeah. I'd worked with over the years that I trusted. And we, we, we um, forged a, a, a work program there that others have followed. I, I brought in a, an, an Australian contracting company called Burncut. You're probably familiar with yeah. Burncut from Perth. Yeah. Um, I dragged them sort of kicking, kicking and screaming out of Australia and said, look, would you do a JV with us here and put down a decline for us? And they did so. And they, they remained in country for many years. And I'm still friendly with the, um, the senior management there because they remember those days in 2007, I think it was, when they first went there. So we brought them in. It was the first Western contracting company to operate in that part of the world. Um, we brought DRA out of South Africa to do the, um, to do the engineering design uh, and, and management of the plant. So there was lots of things that were done for the first time in that part of the world. Now, now I wasn't a corporate person. I, my, most of my experience was in operations So that, and, and my management team the same. So we could bring to the party those skill sets. Yeah. And still, at the same time, I'm learning the corporate side of things, of sitting in front of investors and telling them this is what we're doing. Yeah. Um, just want to go on to something else I read about yourself. Um, obviously, we were talking about a little bit about the recession in 2012, 2013. I would, I would say that's probably the more the mining uh, recession. Um, and there obviously seems to be things slowing down during that time. And I recently read a great article in The Telegraph where you were told – where um, you told the audience uh, we should stop bloody complaining sometimes and just get on with it, um, which I thought was hilarious, um, but so true. I wonder if you can go a little bit deeper around that. When I joined Central Asia Metals and the um, markets were almost shut up and we identified this one project that we have in Kazakhstan, um, the idea was we would raise money on uh, the stock exchange. Um, we did a feasibility study on this copper project in Kazakhstan with Central Asia Metals. And we had the engineering study done by a Chinese group and everybody said we were mad because that the quality would not be uh, good enough. We were never going to debt finance this because the banks were shut. It was always going to be an equity play. Um, and a, a major Western uh, engineering company had done a feasibility, a pre-feasibility study for us uh, in 2008 uh, before my time, which estimated about $100 million to build this project in Kazakhstan. Um, this copper project, um, I came in, I said, well, there's no ways we can afford a hundred million. Let's go to the, the Beijing General Research Institute of Mining Metallurgy, bit of a mouthful, but they were very, very competent engineers. We worked with them. We worked out the uh, process flow diagrams. We uh, sat with them um, for many, many weeks and months going through each uh, item of equipment and deciding whether it would be Chinese uh, manufacturer or Western manufacturer. We, we visited factories to see the quality of the equipment that was being produced. So when the study came out and it was uh, a build cost of $48 million as compared to the Western estimate of 100, yeah. we said, right, well, let's go, go to market on this basis. 
And we went for IPO in 2010 and we raised, and we, we were looking to raise $60 million and we raised $60 million in September of 2010. The markets by then had opened up. Yeah. Um, they didn't open up for long, but we managed to get in there. I think we were the second largest raising in 2010. Um, but we've been telling uh, 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 fund managers, we would not be coming back to you for any money, any more money. 60 million would enable us to build the project and start cash flowing. Yeah. And so rather than the model that previously had been, uh, you go to an investor, you ask for money to do some drilling, maybe you raise five or $10 million, you drill in uh, a prospective part of the world, you then go back to them in two years' time. You say, you know, that drilling we did, well, it didn't quite show up. So we need a bit more money to do a bit more drilling. Mm. And of course, by by that, the company dies a thousand cuts because you, you raise money today at one pound. Next time you go back, you raise it at 50 pence. And then time after that, 20 pence. So yeah. everybody's being diluted and losing value. Yeah. We said, one hit, we'll do it. And we did it. Within 20 months, we built the project in Kazakhstan. We started uh, cash flowing production in early 2012. Um, our stock price didn't particularly uh, recognize that. The market didn't recognize that. So we said, how again are we going to differentiate ourselves? We'll pay a dividend, which for a small company, aimlessly company, paying a dividend within sort of almost eight months of, of, of starting production was almost unheard of. Um, so that's, again, set us apart. First off, it was build it with the equity and let's not go back to market anymore. Um, and the next thing is paying it back. Well, everybody stood up and took notice and said, well, this is a different kettle of fish. They're actually giving us money back. Um, so long we've been pouring money into the industry in the small, small industry, you know, the, the small cap industry. And we're seeing no returns. And these guys are actually giving us a return. That's why... In 2013, you know, I was voted. And the good thing about that I feel about, you know, winning the award for the CEO of the year was the fact that it was voted for by my peers. Yeah. It's people in the industry asking, well, you know, who is it that recognize? recognize what you've done. Yeah. And, they, and, I, and that suddenly realized, you know what? We are doing things right. And other people do recognize that we do it right. Um, did, I, did anybody set out in the course to do these things? No, serendipity again. Yeah. Um, but you must make your own luck as well yes. at times. Um, and so having you know, started in Central Asia Metals, this Kunrad project in 2012, we, we produced nearly 80,000 tons of copper. It's not a big producer, but it's in the lowest decile of cash cost producers. We're, we're producing copper at um, barely 53 cents a pound, um, which is right at the lowest point in the cash cost curve. Um, and we've returned to shareholders $144 million. We only raised $60 million at IPO. Yeah. We've repaid, we paid more than twice that. Yeah. Um, and the share price has gone up. I mean, on a total shareholder return, compound annual growth is over 18%. Now, when in the early 2012, 13, a lot of, 14, a lot of companies saw some pretty bad days, yeah. you look at our share price graph. It's very, very consistent through that period. Um, we haven't performed as well this last year, primarily because we bought a mine in, in Macedonia with Lincoln's zinc and lead. So we're now a copper, lead and zinc producer from two assets, one in Kazakhstan, one in Macedonia. And of course, base metals have had a bit of a rough ride this yeah. year. Um, you know, the, 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 the reasons are well documented. But nonetheless, if you set yourself out to produce... Um, as in our case, 14,000 tons of copper metal, 
about 20, 21, 22,000 tons of zinc in concentrate and 29,000 tons of lead in concentrate. We're not the world's biggest producer, but, you know, with a, with a group gross revenue of over 200 million and a, an EBITDA of 120 to 130 million, EBITDA margin of 60 odd percent. You're an efficient you know, company. It's, it's, it's a good position to be in. Um, when the rental prices go down, obviously you make less money, but hey ho, that's the business we're in. Stop yeah. complaining and just get on with yeah. it. Yeah. So now I want to uh, talk about your obviously your present role and a focus on Central Asia metals. Um, and I hear through the grapevine, the company's doing obviously very well um, and you're doing good things in the industry. I wondered if you can sort of elaborate on that. Um, well, um, obviously, as, as I said in the previous answer, you know, that we. Um, when I joined in 2009, I listed the company uh, on the uh, AIM market in late 2010, raised $60 million with our brokers, and um, then proceeded to um, build the project in Kazakhstan that produces copper. But again, an important aspect is you've got to surround yourself with people that are better than yourself, yeah. if you can. Um, and... Howard Nicholson is a good friend of mine, and I'd worked with him in Ashanti uh, back in the 80s. And he'd uh, recently built a project in Kazakhstan at that time. Um, and in 2009, when I joined Central Asia Metals, I recognized I need somebody with his sort of skill set. He's a mineral processing engineer. And I brought Howard in and I asked him to review this project in Kazakhstan. And I said, look, Howard, go and have a look at this. I'm just not sure if it works. Um, I fully expecting him to come back and say, you know what, Nick, you know, forget it. This will never work. Yeah. And um, off Howard went, and he's a very conservative person, but I trust implicitly what he says. And he came back and said, you know what, Nick, I've looked at the data. This just might work. So if Howard Nicholson says to me, it might just work, and then positivity. Then, yeah, I said, right, well, let's go for it. And we spent uh, a while doing test work on, on, on this project, and it recovers copper from some old waste dumps, not tailings, but waste dumps around an old copper mine in, in Kazakhstan. So this, these dumps have been there anywhere up to 60, 70 years. Um, the copper grade is very low, but a simple irrigation with a weak sulfuric acid and a collection of the um, PLS that comes off the dumps and then treatment in a, an SXEW plant produces copper metal. Um, hence the work that we did on the study in, in, in China. Um, the cost of that study was substantially less than it would have cost us in a, in a conventional, with a conventional Western engineering group. Um, and it gave us a, a capital spend that we could raise equity on. Yep. Equity raised, project built in 20 months. First month we turned the lights on, we turned the power on, we banged out, a thousand tons of copper, um, and we sold it at eight thousand dollars a ton. We made eight million dollars in the first month, and the markets didn't recognise our achievement, even though we told them that we'd come in under budget and on time, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we decided to instigate a share buyback program. Again, that was different. Not many yeah. people in the aim market had done that in the aim space, um, and I think in total. We spent just over $2 million on that share buyback program because of the way you have to structure it in terms yep. of the exchange rules. But we added about $35 million to our market cap. So, so spent the, $2 million to gain $35 You spent million. two because it showed the market, the company thinks uh, your shares are cheap. Yep. You're willing to spend company money to buy back your shares. 
Yeah. Market actually quite likes share buybacks because it reduces the amount of stock. And so obviously, you know, you, the, the, the MPV value or the NAV value of the company is improved on a per share basis. Um, so that was, took us our, our share price back above the price at which we listed the company. Um, and we said, okay, well, let's, for, let's formalize this. And we started a dividend policy in late 2012. Now, bear in mind that we'd only raised the money late 2010. So in two years, we'd built our project. We started production and we started a dividend campaign. Yeah. Um, it's not a progressive dividend. It's an annual dividend based on certain economic criteria. But we, we, we continued then over the years um, to produce copper, to pay a dividend, we originally built a plant capable of producing 10,000 tonnes of uh, copper cathode per annum. We doubled the size of the plant. Again, we did that with, with about $15 million of additional capital spend, which we financed from our own cash flow, obviously. Um, and then we operated the company very much with a on a net cash, positive cash basis on the balance sheet. So we kept plenty of cash. We paid our dividends. And um, um, we doubled our size of our production in Kazakhstan. Um, happy days. Yeah. But you're always looking at what is coming next. And we had been looking for quite some time to add to our portfolio. Um, and we looked in Africa. We looked in South America. In fact, we picked up a small copper uh, project in Chile, which we uh, did a feasibility study on, which didn't give us the returns we were hoping for. Uh, and so rather than flog a dead horse, again, we took the decision we would sell it. And the market quite liked that. They said, well, we do know people that would say, um, this is a project, we're going to flog it until we, you know, till it yep. naturally dies or whatever. We took the decision, no, the MPV was not sufficient to warrant the amount of management time that it would take us to develop the thing. Um, so we kept on looking for that, Asset. We looked in Africa, we kicked tires all over the place. Um, and then again, serendipity, having lunch with somebody at, at Indaba, the Cape Town uh, conference yep. in early uh, 2017, uh, we were talking about one asset this company had uh, in Africa, um, which we knew a bit about, but weren't that excited about. And the guy just dropped in and said, well, we're also selling another thing in Macedonia. It's an underground lead zinc. And my first reaction was, you've got to be joking. You know, from a surface uh, leaching project in Kazakhstan that churns out good money at a very good margin to an underground mine, mining lead and zinc, you know, come on, that's not really where we are. Yeah. However, we looked at it um, and uh, we overcome my initial um, opposition in terms of lead and zinc not being a particularly sexy metals um, they do have, you know, long-term prices, which are substantially lower where they are now. But when we looked at this thing in, in Macedonia, it was a low cash cost. And, and Kunrad, our project in, in Kazakhstan, is low cash cost, lowest decile, as I said. So this thing in, in, in Macedonia, again, it's the lowest quartile. And, if, and which, for those listening, um, if you operate and your cash costs are in the lowest quartile, at least, then there's a lot of other companies that will start to lose money in the business before you do when the price comes down. And the idea is, 
certainly our mantra has been low cash costs mean you stay in business longer than anybody else. Yeah. And you can weather storms because I've been in the business 46, is it 46, 46 years, whoever thought, from 1971. Metal, metals go in cycles. Yeah. If anybody tells you otherwise and that China's come in and there's a new paradigm shift, you know, take a, have a cold bath, go and st- Stand somewhere quietly and contemplate because cycles happen. Yeah. We never know when they're necessarily going to come, but metal prices don't always continue on the up. That probably as much a life lesson as anybody in our industry needs to know. So don't get carried away by it. Uh, But nonetheless, do your sums, work it out so that even if the prices get down to lows, you can still stay in business because you know it will come back. Yeah. Um. Long story, we then uh, agreed to purchase this mine off this group. It was a private equity group out of New York, ostensibly. Um, And it cost us $402 million, which, um, you know, it's quite a bit of money for a small company such as ours. But absolutely, it added on so many levels. It was accretive on an EBITDA per share basis, earnings per share. And it took this company from being a $300 million company to a $600 million company and more. So was it worth it? Absolutely. Um, when we uh, looked to raise the finance to, to purchase this, uh, we needed to take some debt on. Um, we've got a long-term offtake partner in Traxxas who've been trading our copper out of Kazakhstan for many years. And with them, we raised $120 million against our Kazakh property, which we had never had any debt on our balance sheet before. But because we had a long w- working relationship we got two of the banks, uh, ING and Sokgen, to stand behind a $120 million um, uh, loan facility with guarantees by ourselves and Traxxas. Um, there was some debt already in the uh, project, uh, which we took on. That was um, uh, ING and, um, and Investec. And so, uh, sorry, uh, Sokgen and Investec. So we, we suddenly took on debt which we found we could do. The banks look at our track record and say, yeah, you're good guys. But we also had to raise $153 million of equity, which was at the time more than 50% of our market cap. Bear yeah. in mind, you need that money to double in size, yeah. which everybody told me that is a big ask for a company is 50% of your market cap in a new raising. Our financial advisor were J.P. Morgan Casanova and Peel Hunt here in London. Um, and... We did it in four days. Yeah. We did what's called an acceler- accelerated book build. Yeah. Four days, went to all our major shareholders, and absolutely they followed their money. I can remember going in on the last day, everybody being slightly nervous as to whether or not we'd get the exact amount we needed, going in to see one of the major, largest uh, fund managers um, in London and, and, in, and internationally, and speaking to them for, from 4.30, and I'd met them twice, three times a year for the last six years. They knew me. They knew that we'd always delivered yeah. uh, on, on our promises. And by 6.30, they'd given a $27 million order. Right. Yeah. Which is and, and so that's where sticking to under-promise and over-deliver all the years previously leads up to the one point in time when you need them to stand up and support you. Yeah. So... Had we been uh, of the ilk of others, whereby you just tell a, 
you know, anything to get money through the door from day one. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have been able to make You wouldn't have been able to no. do that. We'd have struggled. Four days. And I, a lot of people spoke to me and said, how did you do it in four days on an ABB? And I said, well, I spent seven years getting to that point. Because mm. it's every time you go in to see them over the years. Look, I told you last time I'd do this. You know what? We managed to do it. We're paying a dividend. Yeah. So they, they gain your, you, you know, you gain their trust. Yeah. And then that is hard won, easily lost. Don't bloody well use, lose it um, and stick with it. And so that, you know, for us, it was a fantastic moment because now all of a sudden we owned a, um, a mine in Macedonia, 700 people, fully developed, good skill set, um, 15 to 20 year mine life, uh, lowest quartile operating costs. Um, and that sets us fair then to actually be a, you know, a, a, as I said, a, a gross revenue over $200 million and a and $120, $30 million EBITDA, yeah. um, which is a strong Very impressive. base to be at. And it allows us now from this point to kick on and look for other things. Yeah. Um, we've got the support of banks. We've got the support of in major institutions here in, in London. Um, and we... You know, we have people coming to us now. We yeah. have big banks coming to us, pitching us M&A ideas. So hard work yeah. in, 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 in building that relationship. And, um, but it's something that you can't just turn on and off. Well, it, it's a, it isn't it's done a in five minutes. No, it's a process that, again, it's your own capabilities. And over time, it's delivering on what you promised and what you've said. Um, and building up that credibility, absolutely, which is uh, which is what you've done, and obviously achieved the results that you have. Absolutely, and and serendipity plays in in one's life as to the life choices you make. You know the the jumps you make from one job to the next, uh, and then within those jobs, it's not so much serendipity is a bit of luck. Yeah, but you know what? It's just sometimes hard graft, um, and. Um, you know, I often tell people, look, stop complaining about things that don't go your way. If you're in the mining industry, you're, you're, you're on a flat platform in the middle of an ocean. And when the storms come and that platform's rocking around, you know, you mustn't complain that, oh, I didn't know the sea would be rocky. Yeah. It's a rocky, rocky uh, business. The metal prices can hit you. You can be in a jurisdiction that all of a sudden starts to talk about Resource nationalization, we're seeing it across Africa, we're seeing it in South America, we're seeing taxes being applied, where, com where countries are seeing, uh, uh, mining companies announce lots of profits and saying, well, actually, I could do with some of those profits. So luckily in Kazakhstan, we operate in a very benign tax environment, 20% corporation tax. Um, there's no talk of resource nationalization, and it's a good solid place to be yeah but we've been there for 13 years now as a company private and and listed we have relationships and so it takes time to build up that that comfort we're still learning in macedonia we're, we're still we meet with the government ministers the prime minister but you have to knuckle down and make those relationships work yeah and what's the future of uh, Central Asia Metals? Well, the future is um, in the hands of the management team now. Yeah. Um, I, earlier this year, um, after 44 uh, years of frontline management one way or another, I stepped up to be the chairman of the company. Yeah. Um, and 
I've appointed a CEO, or the board's appointed a CEO, Nigel Robinson, who's been with me absolutely through thick and thin, top man. He's the CEO now. Um, we've appointed a, a COO recently, who's again, another Camborne School of Mines man that I've known for 30 years or more. Yeah. Um, we have our finance director, who is a um, South African-born uh, geologist, Gavin Farrar, who's got a lot of background experience in the banking community. So we have... Um, bolstered the team technically. Um, we've got over a thousand employees out in on in the mines. Yeah. Um, so I am now looking more strategic rather than day to day management of the company. I'm looking at what do we do next. Working with the working with Gavin Farrar and Nigel, looking at other opportunities, and you know they're coming across our desk thick and fast. And yeah. some of them are just absolutely you glance at them and pu- push them to one side. Some of them you take a few hours to read the reports. Yeah, and it's just finding that it's, doing a haystack. It took us three years to find it took us three years to find Sasa, the mine in Macedonia. Um now, so people ask me, well, you know, will it take you another three years? Yeah, it could do. It could have taken me five years. Yeah. Um, but I'm certainly not going to say to myself, set a time limit, oh my God, I've got six months or I've got a year, yeah. and then move on something that's inappropriate. Yeah. You've just you, got to assess each project assess on its each own merits. And if it stacks, then you move. Then you look further. If it stacks, um, move on it. And lots of people are saying to me, manage, uh, fund managers and others saying, "Well, metal prices are, are down. It's good time to buy." <laughs> the good projects still cost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's poorer projects. I nearly used a, 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 a bad word then, but it's poorer projects that aren't getting financed, and poorer projects probably don't deserve it. Yeah. And money will attract good projects if there's a profit in the project and there's stability and a long-term Absolutely. future, the money will the uh, money I don't know will if any, anybody, uh, anybody listening to this will see the Zijin Mining from China um, has offered $1.5 billion to Nevsan for an unbuilt, unstudied project in, in Serbia. Yeah. The, the, it paid over one times NAV for an unbuilt project that's with a capital cost is probably another billion. That's a big, in, if you is. want, if you want tier one assets, you're going to pay a tier one price. Yeah. And that means you're going to have to pay. Yeah. Look at um, first quantum, Cobre Panama. You want a 25 year life project. You're going to pay for it and you're going to pay a lot to build it. Yeah. Um, but once it's in operation, it's going to cash flow out for 30 years, which yeah. is what a company wants. Yeah. Um, conventional MPV calculations probably are not the thing to value the companies in those days. Um, so for us, it's more of the same. Safe jurisdictions we want to operate in, um, mining-friendly countries. Um, but most important, it's got to make money. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, slowly wrap up, but I suppose last, last sort of question, what important advice would you give sort of senior managers like CEO? Uh, or CEO in mining companies around the world who are looking to develop their their organisations. Um, is there anything they should be aware of um, over the coming maybe five five or ten years? What advice would you give those? those well, um, don't don't get over leveraged. Keep your keep your loans manageable. Um, you know we've got a net debt to EBITDA ratio of about one. Um, in the dark days, when some of the bigger companies got into a spot of bother, they were net debt EBITDA ratio of three. Too much debt on the books, 
downturn in the metal price, you suddenly cannot manage the debt repayments. And so don't get too heavily indebted to the extent that if a downturn in the metal price comes, because as I said earlier, you know, everything may be looking rosy one, one, one six month period. And then let's say, um, heaven forbid, let's think that somebody becomes a president of a country that probably is not necessarily attuned to everybody doing well yeah. internationally. And the metal prices turn. Yeah. Um, a trade war happens. And unbeknownst to everybody, you're suddenly sitting there with a great big pile of debt and, and, and unable and to service it. You can't service it. So anybody looking to grow the company, stay within a bite size, stay comfortable and stay always with a view that if it doesn't go wrong, I said, if it doesn't it, go right, it's not going to kill the rest of the company. Yeah. And you've obviously got cash reserves to keep yourself going. Cash reserves. And not working, going back work, out to the market. Working capital is, yeah. is, cash is what kills companies quite often. Yeah. You can have all the value in your project, but if you're not making cash, that's what can cause you yeah. uh, irreparable harm. Yeah, certainly. That's some uh, good advice there from you, Nick. Um, so lastly, just want to ask a, a few, uh, a few fire questions that I ask every interviewee. Um, why do you enjoy mining? Why do I enjoy it? Um, well, it's a bit bloody late to find out I don't <laughs> yeah. enjoy it. I've been in it 47 years. I've had many, many, many more good times than I have hard times. The hard times were early days when I was learning the craft. Would I do anything differently? No. Would yeah. I go into a different industry? No. Loved every minute. Visited countries all over the world. Visited places that you would never ordinarily get to see. Samarkand, you've temples um and no fantastic yeah um who's been the most influential person in your career or if there may be a few people um that's a different difficult one because you've always met in, in people throughout your life who've influenced what you do um i won't name any names yep. um but there are people in ashanti yep. that um you know who i where i worked for 10 years i've looked at and said They've got things right. They've gone on sub subsequently to, you know, some do very, very well, some do less well. But at the time, everybody has their time in life where, they, where they're quite successful. I suppose to me, for me, um, the great thing is that my career built. I never aspired to anything in early days. I never, you know, a lot of youth today come out and they want to be the CEO yeah. tomorrow because well, I can see you sitting in Mayfair um, wearing a suit to work. I don't want to wear an orange overall to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wear the orange overall. Yeah. The suit will come. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so if you build your career a bit like a crescendo yeah. and go out on a high, you can't ask for more than that. Yeah. I was going to ask, is there anything else you want to achieve? But I think you've actually achieved quite a lot in your career. Is there anything else you still want to do? Um, professionally... I don't think there is really. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, um, I uh, don't ask for an awful lot, but I am proud the fact that what I've got, I've done through my own abilities rather yeah. than it be handed to me. Yeah. So rather than take over a company that, you know, I'm being given, look, here's an operating company. I've, I was talking to my uh, a CFO, Nigel Robinson, who's now the CEO of Central Asia Metals, Back in 2009, we got down to half a million dollars in the bank. We were going bust. Um, from that time until um, 
late last year when we raised more money. We only raised $60 million and we built a project that paid back $140 million to shareholders. And we'd done that ourselves, no help from anybody else, apart from the most important people in a company, which are the stakeholders, which are the A, the employees, and B, the investors. Never, ever, ever forget the shareholder base. Yeah. Look after them. Yeah. Where do you see the future of mining? Um, Struggling. Okay. Frankly, um, I think there's a lot of pressures on the mining industry, not least of which is the environmental aspects. It's taking so much longer now to permit operations. Um, countries are more swayed by negative comment on mining than the than view the positive aspects. Um, I've always been a passionate advocate of the mining industry enhancing uh, welfare of people. Yeah. Um, and so you see that infant mortality, you see that literacy rates in some of the third world countries improved where there is mining. Um, regrettably, in years gone by, not all the companies were as scrupulous with what they did as, 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 as we are now. We're, over, we're, we're um, inspected very heavily. If you've got debt on board, the banks want and um, appoint engineers and environmental people to monitor what you do. We have to be very responsible. You know, in um, Kazakhstan and Mongolia, we have great relationships with the local community. We put a lot of money, social money in and help on so many aspects. And so I want to make sure that employees come to work, they're safe at work, they don't get injured, they get paid a decent wage, and they go back to the community. And they go back to a community where their wife and children live, and the children have a decent school. They've got computers on the desk. They've got fresh water in, in, in the school or something, or the housing's good. We're not a social company. We, yeah. we don't provide everything. But where there are problems, let's look to try and help. And so the chap at work knows his family is happy as yeah. well. Um, and then, you know, we've got an extremely low turnover of people in Kazakhstan, for instance, because we, you know, we, we, we spend a lot of time and effort looking after our people. And that, we, we are nothing without our workers. Yeah. And do you think companies have to go back to basics and really look at the communities? That, I, I think so, yeah. yeah. I think so. And don't and always, sometimes it may be overlooked. And don't always ride roughshod over, look, the law of the land says I can do this, so I yeah. will do it. Look at why people object and see if, see if you can overcome them. I heard some very good anecdotes provided by somebody looking at a gold project in, in Central America. And it was a question of win the hearts of minds. Yeah. You know, it took a long time to explain to people what the benefits would be rather than the community seeing governments imposing this on us mm. without asking us. Yeah. Work with the local community. So eventually, in this anecdote I, I heard, the local community was demanding of the government that they allow something to happen yeah. because they could see the benefits that it would accrue to a village that is losing its youth to the yeah. urban urban. Uh, uh, you know, immigration into urban areas where the youth want jobs. Mm. You can understand that. Yeah. So how do you keep the, the youth in, in, in industry? I mean, in, so it's, uh, I suppose it's finding out what they actually want and What they need. want. I mean, just to segue, and I'm sorry if I'm taking too yeah. much time no, up. No, in Macedonia, we've identified that the um, local villages, you know, most of the youth disappear off to into Europe, uh, the rest of Europe, the European Union, um, for higher paid work. So the age profile of the workers we have at Macedonia is not, is not optimal. So we've in, implemented a, a scheme. We've already paid out 20 scholarships to, to young people to go 
to study at the local university in the technical subjects. And we're going to set up a mining school and bring people in from the local village to show them that this is a good, good career move and stop them moving away from towns because the local mayor comes to me and said, look, Nick, we, you know, we've, we've got our youth are leaving and we need to try and incentivize them to stay yeah. and show them that mining is a good business. Yeah. Um, it, it's a for, it can be a force for good, but we have to be good advocates and we um, and, and to ensure that happens, we have to recognize people's concerns yeah. and try and address them. Yeah. And lastly, any advice you'll give any uh, sort of mining professionals in the industry in sort of developing and bettering themselves, no matter what level they are, if they're junior or even more senior, any sort of advice that you would give um, those types of people? Learn your trade. Yeah. Learn your, I mean, it's as simple as that. Learn your trade. You're not going to get onto the management uh, ladder or the corporate ladder by by just being a nice bloke yeah. or girl. Um, you know, you've got to learn your trade, be proficient at it, take responsibility, don't always ask for close management um, and get more decisions right than wrong. Yeah, yeah. There's some good good points there you pointed out, Nick. So, um, well, f- thanks a lot, for Nick, for discussing this, uh, your journey. And obviously, you've achieved so much in the uh, in your career and in, in the industry. And I hope our listeners have got a, uh, a lot from this um, and see what they can achieve if you put your mind, passion and desire into your career. Um, if our audience wants to con- uh, contact you or connect with you, um, how can they go about doing that? Well, they can always send me an email. Yep. Um, Nick.clark at centralasiametals.com. Yep. Um, Clark with an E, that is. Um, and yeah, look, I I always look to help people. I'm, you know, I'm also on the um, Camelot School of Mines Trust, which is a charitable organization that uh, has money uh, invested. And, and from the interest from that, we uh, help students at the Camelot School of Mines, for instance, in scholarships, in PhD support, travel scholarships to visit conferences, mines and whatever. Um, I'm very, very passionate about helping youngsters get into our industry because i think it's a great industry yeah um it's got challenges as i said on the environmental on the permitting side but the young engineers coming out know how to deal with these things responsible environmental engineering is is what we do and what they get trained in yeah and so we need these people coming into the industry yeah and are you on any social media platforms at all uh, <laughs> I think I think I, you're on LinkedIn. Am I? Yeah, yeah. I have two friends. Okay, and <laughs> um, that's not because it, I don't have any friends. I hasten to add, it's because, to be frank, um, I, I do know people on LinkedIn, and most of what they get is you know applications for work, and and uh, yeah. you know um, I, I can't help everybody. Yeah, understand. So um, yeah. yeah, well, obviously they can email you, or obviously Absolutely. alternatively. Um, you can email myself via email, which is rob at mining-international.org. Thanks a lot for another uh, podcast and thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it and got some valuable content from it. So until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org. Or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.